The word says where two or three are gathered, touching and agreeing on one accord, then and there, that remnant, that minority, divine things happen. So it is well received, the opening uh, greeting in Spanish this morning as I was trying to discern our centering moment. Our centering moment is dedicated to Maya Sorelio of Vivaldi, Texas. The 11 year old who found herself in a classroom as a teacher was hurrying in from hearing the reports of another teacher that there was a shooter in the building. The teacher, before she could close the door, the shooter had made his way in, shot her and the other teacher. The door was closed and locked and outside, Maya heard police officers and she scurried, she and her friend, to get the telephone, the cell phone of the dead teacher, wrestle it from her body. She heard the police officer say in the hallway, let us know that you're in there. Say help if you're in fear of danger. Her best friend said help. The shooter, to the shooter shot her. Maya knew to keep quiet. She had a hermeneutic of suspicion. If you are my help, if you know trouble's inside, why are you outside that door? Toni Morrison, former professor here at Princeton, wrote a wonderful book called The Bluest Eye. And in that text, which is about little black girls in a world that looked on them in contempt and pity, one black girl called Pecola said if she had blue eyes, she knew she would be beautiful and loved. And morning by morning and day by day, she prayed for blue eyes, but her two playmates who preferred black dolls that looked like them realized that Pecola's wish would not only not come true, but it was a death-dealing wish to want to out-white a white person or out man, a man, when you're a little black girl. And Claudine said this in the text, since no one was paying us attention, we paid very close attention to ourselves. That is what Maya Cirillo did when she realized that her teacher was dead. The police would not protect her. Fate was between her discernment, the gun of a rabbit shooter. She had to think, not on her feet, on her back. And the only thing she could think was, they all want me dead. So I better play dead while being wise and woke. She reached her hand over and the pool of blood spilling from her best friend. 
and wiped it all over her body. So this is for Maya, who shows us that the words of antiquity still ring true. There is power in the blood if we know how to use it. So that which will kill us might pass over. For Maya, the words of Lucille Clifton, won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model born in Babylon, both non-white and woman. What did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay. My one hand holding tight, my other hand. Come celebrate with me that every day, Something, someone has tried to kill me and has failed. May Maya live as long as she wants and not want as long as she lives. Today's lecture is entitled God's Handiwork Hidden in Plain Sight. The Gospel According to Womanism. age, I developed an interest in the complex relationship between norms and actions, forms and functions. Although I neither had the scholarly language of ethics nor the axiological framework of sociology of religion necessary to structure my six-year-old observations at the time, I was nonetheless intrigued to find that the relationship between the theological quasi-spiritual preaching of many church leaders and ministers, those who arguably have been called by God, and the actual practices of these self-same purveyors of the word of God were not in perfect accord. As I grew older and more aware, it amazed me to discover that despite what I had been taught in word and song, judging by the actions of my elders, Jesus did not, in fact, Love all the children of the world. Herein lay the fallacy of my childish moral reasoning. I had assumed that preaching would dictate practice and thoughts would dictate action. That theoethical wrestling marked the beginning of my consideration of the ethicist supreme query, why do people do what they do? I realized that what I saw as a child in Corpus Christi, literally translated, as I told you before, from Latin as the body of Christ, differed fundamentally. That perhaps I was so close to Texas, as Ana Castillo says, and so far away from God. What I saw was racial distrust. I saw the perpetuation of sexist stereotypes. I saw that preaching would dictate practice and that thoughts dictate action that theoretically marked the beginning of my consideration of the ethicist supreme query. At an early age, I also saw people of one so-called minority group turn against other oppressed people, disavowing any commonalities, any shared history, yet claiming the same spiritual stridings. As a youth, I also remember being disappointed 
by my local congregation's refusal to include persons who did not fit the community's norms of being religious, while at the same time fully professing pious, liberationist Christianity, which I understood to be an inclusive gospel. Red and yellow, black and white, we're all precious in his sight. Jesus loves. I witnessed the rejection of unwed mothers, the unchurched sinner, the uneducated fool, all rejected because they could not be assimilated comfortably into my middle-class Black Baptist environment by the normative standards of that institution. Perhaps the single most damning thing I saw was a tragedy of internalized oppression within a culture by those who did not embody what godliness should look like. To see situations within the black community of my youth in which equally disadvantaged people oppressed and persecuted one another rather than looking out for one another was bad enough. But to realize that such malevolence was often done in the absence of white antagonists was even more distressing. Thus, from early on, I was plagued by these contradictions. My childhood question of how could so-called Christians behave as if God never existed only escalated during my intellectual and theological formation as a graduate student into is there a qualitative difference to oppression? How can those who have been the most oppressed subscribe to a theology of oppression? Then as an educated, PhD-minted minister, I asked, where is the love of God in the face of the least of these? And how ought I, as a Black woman, who is both among the oppressed and the oppressor, consider my character, my actions, and my condition within the ranks? This ethical contradiction, illuminated by sacred texts and social practices, was a warning sign to me about the thinking, doing, and being trichotomy, in which the marginalized wrestle with notions of theodicy while being imprisoned by the colonizing forces of sacred rhetoric. Unlike Isis, the goddess of Africa, or the regal, black, and beautiful beloved denoted in the biblical Song of Songs, Black American women's real lived experiences in recent centuries illustrate not just the double jeopardy of double consciousness that Du Bois talked about, but for a black woman, we live not just behind the veil, but we are the living incarnation, traveled through the blood of the slaughtered, of perhaps what might be deemed the incarnation of triple jeopardy. The stereotypical images of the effacing mammy, matriarch, welfare queen, bitch, villain, sapphire, Jezebel, loud woman at the podium, gangster hoe, are projected daily onto black American women, thereby rendering them begrimed and flawed before their character, if ever, is seen. Cast in this depraved state, black women experience real and ongoing cognitive dissonance in their lifelong journey for self 
realization, and social empowerment. The empowerment must come from some source, either within themselves or beyond human control, for it certainly does not come from society at large. A salient example of this cognitive distance can be found in Alice Walker's novel, The Color Purple. Here, the novel's central character, Seeley, the once confused and God-fearing Christian who was taught to worship a God who was a big, tall, white, old, bearded, banker-looking, hippie, maybe barefooted man with cool, bluish-gray eyes. And she finds herself after praying to that God and not getting answered that she wants more and ends up disavowing a God to whom she once, once bared her soul. In a letter to her sister Nettie, she writes, I don't write to God no more, I write you. What happened to God, asked Suge, her friend. Who that, I say? She look at me real serious. Big a devil as you is, I say, you not worried about no God, surely. She said, wait a minute. Hold on just a minute here, Celie say. Just because I don't harass it like some people us know, don't mean I ain't got no religion. What God do for me, I ask, Aceli, like she shot. He gave you life, good health, and a good woman that love you to death. Yeah, I say, and he gave me a lynch daddy, a crazy mama, a low down dog of a stepfather, and a sister I'll probably never see again. Anyhow, I say, the God I've been praying and writing to is a man and act just like all the other men folks I know, trifling, forgetful, and low down. She said, Miss Celia, you better hush. God might hear you. Let him hear me, I say. If God ever listened to poor colored women, the world would be a different place. Now, Celia's recognition of a Eurocentric anthropomorphic sexist image of God is an expression of what has recently been referred to as misogynoir. What black feminists have noted as a world wherein all the women are white and all the blacks are men, which necessitates that the rest of us have to be brave. It is for this reason that the metalogue and meaning of the novel's title is captured by the statement, quote, I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field somewhere and not notice it, unquote. For in so doing, God's handiwork is hidden in plain sight. Like the color purple, like Seely, contemporary black women continue to wrestle with reconciling the miserable returns that have met their social investment with professing an abundant faith and moral urgency. Yet even as they persist, they still insist that the world would be a better place if others could see it from their perspective. Here in this place of existential angst and eschatological hope, black women's insistence of making a way out of no way, lifting as they climb, hitting a straight lick with the crooked stick and pressing on the upward way represents the moral wisdom and spiritual fortitude of those who have been silenced and made invisible in the task of normative theological ethics. These women, despite marked advances in social and political order of American society, are still deemed little more than three-fifths 
human. As a result, they are never afforded the status of being a responsible self in the normative ethical gaze of H. Richard Niebuhr. Recall that Niebuhr presumes a responsible self to be a moral agent who has the power and autonomy to exercise freedom, self-directing freedom in relating to God and neighbor. Such agency is unavailable within the everyday reality of the black woman because she has neither the power nor social regard with which she can engage man or God. Her experience of what it means to be human is thus denied. Furthermore, the black woman's experience of what it means to be an embodied human exposes John Rawls' classic theory of justice as an absurdity because it disregards envisioning a justice for human beings who are actually embodied people. This moral reflective weakness is not exclusive to scholars alone. Even everyday black women are mystified by ordinary, well-intentioned and God-fearing people who claim to see the humanity in everyone, yet are frequently ignorant of issues of gender, class, and race in their midst. Even as we are lamenting Givaldi's shooting, 20 other shootings have happened in the United States. And such ignorance is bliss. What do we say and do when the disinherited of our world, nation, state, cities, and communities, and homes disregard what is plainly evident? How can we dissenter ourselves from our privileged positions of comfort while simultaneously placing at the center of our thoughts and actions a constructive envisioning? As in the words of Howard Thurman, those of us who carry the gospel must ask the question, what then is the word of the religion of Jesus to people who stand with their backs against the wall, their bodies slathered in blood, or the knees of the state that was meant to protect them, becoming their predator? It is the work of womanism in religion and society that attempts to mine those untapped mother loads of moral wisdom, work, and witness spoken by Black women, written by Black women, done in the ministry of Black women, seen in their minds, hearts, and souls. This is wisdom, work, and witness gleaned from women whose lives give a worm's eye view of our particular world. Ironically, although often disparaged and undervalued, Black women's perspective represent a model of epistemological privilege from an oppressed standpoint that can help all of us describe, analyze, and empower just as Maya when we dare to see the world not through blue eyes, but eyes that are watching for God. Womanism is revolutionary. Womanism is a paradigm shift where black women no longer look to others, but they look to themselves. 
themselves. These revolutionaries are black women scholars who have armed themselves with pen and paper, not simply to dismantle the master's house, but to do the important work of building a house of their own. As intellectual revolutionaries, womanist scholars undertake praxis that liberates theory from its captivity to the intellectual frames and cultural values of those which cause and perpetuate the marginalization of black women in the first place. Akin to the feuds between Frederick Douglass and Elizabeth Cady Stanton in the last decades of the 19th century, Black male theologians and white feminist theologians from the 60s to the 80s were often disempowered in the public sphere, yet power brokers in the subaltern counterpublics of the dispossessed, which rendered those who were black and female despised, vulnerable, and on the front line as casualties in a war that were never waged with them in mind. Throughout American history, even in the academy, the interrelationship between racial oppression, gender inequity, and class exploitation reflects that black women's lives and deaths have been characterized by trying to survive while fighting the battle of triple jeopardy. More than a century and a half after Isabella Bomfrey changed her name to Sojourner Truth, a small cadre of female scholars who were black and at Union Theological Seminary, just everyday seminarians, whose professors and classmates asked them, who in the hell called you to preach? As some of them were holding on with their calls while seeing classmates taken out in body bags because of intimate violence, addiction, or suicide. These women decided to change their minds so they can rest their call and their lives away. By various levels of inspiration, black women could bear witness, not just to the power of their enemy, but that they had the subjective agency to change not only their surroundings, but also their situations. With changed names and changed minds, these black women took hold of an emerging consciousness that not only provided a new outlook on life, but also ushered forth a new epistemology. The year 1985 marked an epoch for black women scholars. It was in that year that the term womanist adopted from Alice Walker's definition in her classic 1983 text. And I'll have handouts going around the room for you of that definition. Outside of the full version of the term, a common understanding of womanist is that she is a black woman committed to define the compounded forces of oppression, namely racism, sexism, classism, and heterosexism that threaten her self-actualization as well as the survival of her community. During the more than three decades now that have followed its introduction via biblical studies, ethics, theology, history of religion, sociology of religion, and religious education, womanist approaches to religion society have contributed much to the understanding of black religious life. Though the term womanist was coined by Alice Walker, womanism became a movement 
when black scholars of religion, like Katie Geneva Cannon, Jacqueline Grant, Dolores Williams, all three at Union together as students, with the Bible in one hand, the syllabus in their face, and needing another sacred text that allowed them to see themselves created in the image of God. And there, in a pop culture, ripped from the text, blown up by a Jewish admirer into a movie, the color purple was seen not in the film, but was seen in the term womanist. And these three works emerge. For almost four decades, this revolution has continued, not only in the work of first generation pioneers such as Renita Weems, graduate of Princeton, the first black woman in the United States to receive a PhD in the Hebrew Bible. Sean Copeland, Emily Towns, Kelly Brown Douglas, critical to womanist thought this notion that womanism is neither a neck up disembodied nor an ivory tower elitist venture. Womanism and womanist scholars decided to be concerned with the mental, physical, and social dimension of black women's real lived experience. Thus womanism is a homegrown discourse, deeply rooted in the concerns and realities of black women of African descent to be a womanist in turn is to be a black woman, one among the dispossessed, no matter whose house one may work in or visit. For womanism is not about dismantling the master's house, but using the tools that built it to build houses on strong foundations of their own. Other generations of homileticians like Teresa Fry Brown, Will Gaffney, who created Womanist Midrash and distilled from Renita Weems, Clarice's, Clarice Martins, and others' work, a womanist hermeneutic. Former Princeton professor Yolanda Pierce, who is now the first female dean of Howard Divinity School. Ebony Marshall Terman, generations and scores of generations realized that womanism, while from the perspective of black women, is surely the epistemological privileged perspective and point of view that will allow us in the 21st century to realize the web of mutuality that King only dreamt about. As Marshall says, we are one after all, you and I. Together we suffer, together exist, and forever will create 
one another. From womanish, opposite of girlish, frivolous, irresponsible, not serious, a black feminist or feminist of color, from the black folk expression of mothers to female children, you act in womanish like a woman, usually referring to outrageous, audacious, courageous, or willful behavior, like covering oneself in blood, wanting to know more and in greater depth than what is considered good for one like saying help, interested in doing grown-up doings, acting grown-up, being grown-up, interchangeable with another Black folk expression, you trying to be grown. In other words, Walker says, being responsible, in charge, and serious when no one else believes your life matters. The second definition that Walker gives is that a womanist is also a woman who loves other women, sexually and or non-sexually, appreciates and prefers women's culture, women's emotional flexibility, values tears as a natural counterbalance of laughter and women's strength. Sometimes loves individual men, sexually and or non-sexually. You have all this on your sheet. Committed to survival and wholeness of an entire people, male and female, not separatists, except periodically for health sake. Traditional universalist is in, and this is a, a recapturing of Harriet Tubman talking to her mother. Mama, why are we brown, pink, and yellow and our cousins are white, beige, and black? And the answer is, well, you know, the colored race is just like a flower garden with every color flower represented, realizing the diversity of blackness. And traditionally as capable, which is more akin to Tubman, Mama, I'm walking to Canada. And I'm taking you and a bunch of other slaves with me. And her mother assures her in the midst of her exceptionalism, it wouldn't be the first time. Part of the myth, the banality, and the cruelty of American history is that the works and wonders of others never show up in the census. Like the young boy who was not counted in Jesus's, one of Jesus's greatest miracles that we talked about yesterday. What would happen? How can you not be counted when it's your very resources that fed the multitude? Kind of like COVID. It took the absence of the schoolroom. It took the absence of Amazon Prime, of the Kroger clerk of the post, all of a sudden, essential work was a work done by the despised. The only people, now we, we cannot forsake healthcare workers, but the only essential workers that mattered were healthcare workers and the people we disregard every day. What would happen if those we take for granted stopped using their wonder-working power on our behalf. Womanism is not separatist. It is saying, do you realize what you would have if you saw the world through the eyes of those who have the weight of your world 
in their hands, on their neck, on their back, keeping them on their knees. That's why Walker says in her third definition of womanism, of womanist, that a womanist then must love that which society uses to mock them. A womanist must love music, loves dance, loves the moon, loves the spirit, loves love and food and roundness, loves struggle, loves the folk, but loves herself regardless. And the fourth part that Walker offers to us, womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender. That it's not a departure point, but it's going into the greater depths of a real commitment of DEI. We're, we live in this society where everyone wants to have a DEI workshop. And whenever I go give them, I said, well, it's one thing to have a workshop on DEI. But as leaders of institutions, of teachers of students, pastors of parishes, the question is, are we made in the image of DEI? Because God is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Womanism is about the guiding principles of promoting the liberation, the survival of black women and the entire African-American people without prohibiting the wholeness of others, while also advocating against all forms of advancement. I love the way that Jackie Grant says it. She says, if you lift up the ground, surely everything else will be lifted up. Thus, it reclaims black women's experiences, histories, bodies, aesthetics, literature, etc., as primary sources for theological reflection and biblical interpretation. Hortense Spillers puts it this way. As long as the hunted gets to write the narrative, as Chinua Achebe reminds us, the lion never gets to tell his story. And knowing that folktale, which is a sacred truth well, all women, and particularly Black women, have gone to fiction to hide their truths. Because if it wasn't for fiction, novels, songs, and prayers, these women's words would never be read. So popular culture is not just an aside. How do you get the verifiable truth when the census doesn't count the savages? Womanism then maintains that God, Jesus, identifies with the oppressed, the least of these, in their commitment to and struggle for, for justice and hope. It encourages interracial bonds between girls and women in order to strengthen relationships and transfer survival tools. Now, I know that many people might be wrestling with, well, it maintains that God and Jesus identifies with the oppressed. Go back and look at the stories in the Bible where Jesus works miracles.
the first miracle of Jesus? Does anybody know? Yes. And why did he do that? Because his mama told him to. And when she told him to, I believe Mary was a black woman. When she told him to, when she told him to, what did he say? It is not my time. And then what did she say? Did she quarrel with him? She said, talk to the hand. Because the face don't understand. And she looked at the servants and said, and what did he do? And why did she do it? Because she loved her friend. And she knew the shame and disgrace that would happen if you ran out of wine at the one celebration your daughter would ever receive. Because she remembered as a 14-year-old girl what it means to marry a 40-year-old man who might hold you suspect about your truth. And here she is at the one perhaps beautiful day As a mother gives her child away, she's out of line. And Jesus pushes back. Jesus's miracle making power was not only carried by his mother, but activated even before Jesus knew. Mary and Martha do what? Jesus goes on his vacation, they send a telegram. Come back. Your homeboy, our brother, is dying. Does Jesus rush back? Jesus takes his time. Shows up. And what do they say? Have you lost your right mind? Where have you been? Right? Got all indignant in his face. And then what did Jesus do? He went. but showed them in his delay, his power, foreshadows his own resurrection by showing that God is love. And when God loves the oppressed, God becomes Emmanuel with us. God is on the side of the oppressed. When we look at Exodus, you all believe it's a story about Moses and Pharaoh. Is it really? Because the wonder workers there, they don't even need to meet. The midwives do what? Shipra, Pua, charged by their job to kill the baby boys. And they thought. Because they always, to be oppressed is always know the mind of your oppressor. But to be oppressed is always be assumed that you don't have a mind. And they took that to their credit. And they said, well, you know, they were just born before, you know, those, those wild women. Right? Hebrew women with the wide hips. They just pop them out before we can kill them. That stereotype worked, did it not? knowing she had something special, Moses' mother, sends Moses' sister and says, put the baby in a basket, put him in the water. 
Then the baby is found by Pharaoh's daughter, who knows it's a Hebrew baby, yet she adopts him as her own. Then Moses hooks up with support. All of these women become the underground railroad without ever meeting, all being different, all living in different masters. The woman with the issue of blood, who wasn't looking for the H-I-M Jesus, but only needed to touch the H-E-M Jesus. The Syrophoenician or the Canaanite woman, who Jesus calls a dog by giving her the demographic status that she has in the house of Israel. She says, that's all good. I've been called everything. You're right. But I need my baby healed. Then after Jesus comes back from his second holiday, having a house party at Simon's house, here comes, some say, Mary of Bethany, some say, a harlot, long hair, breaking up her alabaster box of perfume that she could have made money off of. She anoints Jesus. And the disciples jump on her. And Jesus says, leave her alone because she knows as a stranger, what you don't know as my most intimate disciples and homeboys. And it's for that reason that wherever the gospel is really preached, it will be done in remembrance of her. The perspective of womanist thought liberates the God spells that we had been under with our disillusions of greatness or because we've been looking through the bluest eye that doesn't see black lives. Whereas Walker's womanism is descriptive of this articulation of the subjective communal self-loving and critical aspects of black women's culture and the cult of black womanhood. Womanist ethics is constructive in that it seeks to determine how to eradicate oppressive social structure that limit and subscribe the agency of African-American women. Womanist ethical reflection provides descriptive foundations that lead to analytical constructs for the eradication of oppression in the lives of black people and by extension, the rest of humanity and creation. And so, Womanism in its academic discourse and theological interpretation becomes first what I call radical subjectivity. It's radical because black women are claiming agency and their subjective worldview where they are not victims of circumstance, but rather are responsible, serious, and in charge women. As Fannie Lou Hamer says, you can pray until you faint, but if you don't get up and try to do something, God is not going to put it in your lap. And so as the women within the Bible that I have just noted, it was their action that made Jesus change Jesus' mind and say, great is your faith. Let it be unto you as you will. Secondly, womanism is traditional communalism. 
It, it is a theological discourse that takes into account, it's, it's an ethic that takes into account the various gifts, identities, concerns of black people in general in order to use every resource available to strengthen the community as a whole. Realizing that if you are silent about your pain, it's the telling of the truth, that using testimonies, text, they'll kill you, as Zora Neale Hurston says, and say you enjoyed it. I don't know about you, but in Texas, the one day where slavery is talked about in the history books, it's talked about as on-the-job training. Oh, this is true, and not enslavement. When you go on those wonderful, fashionable, with your family plantation visits and reenactments, as you're about to uh, do something on Monday with regards to Juneteenth, barbecue or have a picnic, which is a name that was used to describe how black people were picked to be lynched. When you go on these plantation tours, they want to talk about happy slaves. Masters who loved their servants. So it is telling the truth by saying that you have pain, part of institutional sexism for women. We already talked about political discourse where being politically correct means you do what? don't practice correct politics. What are the three things that you don't talk about in polite company? Religion, politics, and money. What runs America? So womanism says, no, 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 no. Somebody has to tell the truth. Speak truth to power because the devil needs no more advocates. God needs handiwork. So that third tenet that correlates to Walker, I name as redemptive self-love by demystifying the perception of black women's bodies, ways and loves as vile, the intentionality with which black women writers Write back black women into their truer selves is invaluable in the formation of womanist ethics. Instead of seeing being black and female as a problem, seeing it as a power, as Stacey Abrams did when red became blue, it became purple. It wasn't so much about politics, it's about what agency can do to organize a community on behalf of its best interest. She says, my being a black woman is not a deficit. It is my strength. It is realizing where two or three are gathered. Diversity is not deficient. Diversity is divine. And last but not least, it is critical engagement. Womanism obliges black women cr to critically engage the world at the intersection of their oppression since they have borne the brunt of social injustice throughout the history of the modern world. It is to realize, as Kelly Brown Douglas says, that while Charlottesville, as we saw, the Unite the Right rally is certainly alarming as all of these shootings and protests, as the epiphany that we had on January 6th, 
2021, it should come as no real surprise, just like for Maya. For as disgusting as many Americans find the beliefs of these crusaders, their white supremacist beliefs reflect an ugly truth about this country. The truth is this country, even as it proclaims freedom and justice for all, was founded on an Anglo-Saxon myth of white racial superiority. And here, Kelly Brown Douglas, as an Episcopalian priest and the dean of the Episcopal Divinity School, realizes that black women have no ground to stand. Not merely because Jesus is presented as metaphysically white, male, and with blue eyes, but ontologically, perhaps, God becomes in our hands and through our mouths a white supremacist. Our work is to wrest back what the lies of history, what the demons that have possessed us, and our advocacy that has been used for injustice has done. Our work is to do the work, as Katie Cannon says, that our souls must have, not for the charity of others, but as Maya could tell you, because your very life might one day depend on the blood of those who have been slaughtered beside you. Questions? Question. Yes, Carol. So, like, like we talked about on the first day of 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 of, of, of the lecture that philosophically speaking, when we're talking about this pursuit of truth, we can get caught up in the phenotypical reality of things in order to displace truths, in order to avoid necessary conversations. So we'll say, is this thing real? Metaphysically, is this real? Like we talked about table mess, talked about a, a table. The same way people will say, race is a social construct. Race is not metaphysically real. So you, not only were you perhaps disoriented when you realized that there are two creation stories, right? But you might have been disoriented for um, those arguments about the Hamitic curse. Does anybody remember the Hamitic curse, the Hebrew Bible? Now, some professors will dismiss the Hamitic curse because they're like, surely we're not going to even talk about race, right? The Hamitic curse was when Noah, when his son, does anybody remember his son's name? Ham, right? sees him naked, naked and drunk, right? After having built the ark, right? Chilling. And Ham sees him appalled, shocked, and laughs at his father's nakedness, goes to get his brothers. You remember his brother's name? Sham and Jephthah. They come, but instead of looking at their drunk, naked father, they supposedly walked backwards and covered him up. When Moses... I mean, when Noah sobered up, he cursed Ham 
Not by saying curse are you, but curse be Canaan, right? Ham's son and all of his children who will be enslaved and subject to the children of the brothers. Now, from these two parents, indeed it was a garden. The way in which uh, history uncovers it is that one represented Europe, one represented Asia, the other ham represented Africa. That, that, that's a shorthand version. And that's why black people are cursed. Okay, that, that's supposedly. And then we hear the story of Nimrod, who's also a descendant of Ham. And you remember that story. Nimrod, the Tower of Babel is probably how you probably don't remember Nimrod's name, but the Tower of Babel is built. And there are these people who are working together to reach heaven. Now, that's really interesting because there's no problem when anybody else who comes from the right line is building these fabulous temples. But when the wrong bodies start building, right? Now, who has a problem with skyscrapers? They're great. If David's doing it, Saul's doing it. But when these other bodies start doing it, God confounds them. They can't speak the same language, which is also how Chattel slavery happens, Occidental slave trade. They can't speak the same language. They're confounded and they are stopped at their evil attempt to try to take God's power. A woman as hermeneutic would tell you ontologically, right, that following this logic will not only make you see God as white, but it will make God become a white supremacist which is why Bill Jones wrote the book, Is God a White Racist, right? Ontologically, black people realize that this is just color, right? I mean, ontologically, we understand that it's not about pigmentation, right? Because most, a lot of, not, at least in Texas, a lot of white people have no problem getting darker. In fact, they'll risk melanin cancer, I mean, cancer, right? So it's not about, but it's about when it's, it's about racism. Right? So it's not the, real, the metaphysical reality. It's about the ontological reality of what power can do when it becomes embodied in a person. So that is what Douglas is saying, that we have to wrest the gospel from those who have hold of it. Civil religion has displaced Christianity in America. Right? The sacred text right, is not the Bible no matter how much people hold it back up backwards and upside down, right? It's not even the Constitution, it's the Second Amendment. The sacred person is not though Jesus or any other martyrs, it's the President of the United States. Our, our myths, our creeds. So when we're talking about the difference between what is metaphysical, what is real, versus what is ontological, what is experienced as real. So it, it matters not how much somebody tells me. It doesn't matter what the race of God is. It doesn't matter that the Bible might say that Jesus had skin of brass and hair of wool. Right? We can... Those debates are superfluous. What does matter is, I need to see a Jesus that can see me 
I need to understand a God that is not white supremacist. Because if all, if, if, if we are formed by a rigid, blasphemous Calvinist orthodoxy that tells us that everything that is happening now is existing because God wills it to be that way. What does that mean? If, if we're dealing with the divine will deontology, that everything that is, is because that's how God wants it. Womanism rejects that. So it's kind of like Angela Davis taking on Reinhold Niebuhr's serenity prayer. I mean, does anybody know the serenity prayer? Can anybody quote it? God grant me. To what? Accept the things I cannot change. Change the things I can. And the wisdom to know the difference. Angela Davis says, bump that. What does it mean if, if, if a black woman says, help me accept the things that I cannot change? Think about all the women in the Bible. Okay, what would have happened? If, if Vashti, Mary, 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 Mary. not so. If God is God, give me the courage to change the things I cannot accept. This is the gospel truth. That where two or three are gathered, and you need two or three because you need to be different. That is why metaphysically God cannot be anthropomorphic. God, we don't need God to be human. But we need to see the spirit of God at work in the diversity, equity, and the inclusion of our community. And my benediction in prayer is, may you be made in that image.